Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode, our guest is Paul Griffin, Legal Director at Child Justice, Inc., one of the few organizations in the country dedicated to ensuring a child's right to be legally protected from an abusive parent. As legal director, Paul, alongside with his colleague, Alexandra Sandez, represents non-abusive protective parents in child custody cases in which there is evidence of domestic violence or child abuse. Paul also works to coordinate the pro bono legal work that well-respected law firms offer to protect these victims who may otherwise become quote-unquote lost in the system after exposure to family violence, physical and or sexual abuse, substance addictions, or neglect. In addition to speaking to us about his work in child justice, Paul will also speak about his other advocacy work on behalf of abused children and share insights from both cautionary and success tales, strategies and recommendations for how we can strengthen our laws, and update our practices to ensure that children's safety is a priority over abusers' parenting rights. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I always start my interviews with my guests with having them talk briefly about their background and how they came to the work. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about your journey to uh, child justice and your journey as to how you became interested in working with survivors, protective parents, and children? Sure. I, uh, I'm i an attorney, obviously. I, uh, I'm a former U.S. Marine. I got out of the Marine Corps, went to college, and then law school. Uh, I was working at that time, it was about 2001, at uh, O'Melveny & Myers in Washington, D.C. office. And I came about I came to work in this case by accident, quite frankly. Uh, my friend Greg Jacob, who is uh, another attorney back at Old Melvin Myers, had left to go work in the government, and they needed someone to step into a case and help. And I, I was literally just asked to do this. Uh, it was a custody case here in Maryland with child abuse. And I naively assumed that it would be like other cases. I'd go there and we'd put on our evidence. And, you know, judges, you, know, you always hear how we try to protect children, particularly from abuse, that, that it, it would be fine. We would we would win and have no problems. We had evidence, you know, to support us. And lo and behold, I was I felt like I was stepping into, um, you know, Alice in Wonderland. It was completely different. It was like the rules of evidence. Civil procedure didn't seem to apply. Uh, hearsay used against my client was was uh, broadly considered in the case. And the court very reluctantly protected the children, although in the end, the court did do that. We were able to convince the judge to do the right thing. In the end, we, we settled the case on good terms also after getting some favorable rulings. But um I I came to it by accident, but was so taken aback by how the system was so poorly run that I became um, agitated. Uh, I became, you could even say that I became, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That I became, uh, well, agitated, I think I'll go with, uh, radicalized. That's the word I'm looking for. That I needed, you know, I needed to do these cases. They needed competent attorneys in these cases to litigate them. So I got involved with what was then called Justice for Children with Eileen King, our predecessor organization to our current organization, Child Justice. 
and was working on these cases for, oh God, roughly what, 14, 15 years uh, in a pro bono capacity. Eileen broke off to form her own organization, Child Justice, and she asked me to, to be on her board, which I gladly accepted. And after being on the board for a couple of years, uh, Child Justice received a grant from a wealthy and anonymous donor to hire uh, an attorney, a legal director. And they asked me if I wanted to, to take that position, which I gladly did uh, a little over two years ago now. And it's the first job that I have really loved as a lawyer. Um, really, it's the first job I've really loved as a lawyer. I was going to say since whatever, but I can't think of anything else. I, I've, it's, it's tough work. It's heartbreaking work sometimes, but I really much enjoy my job. Um, I get up in the morning ready to work uh, when I'm not actively litigating Cases, um, reading and researching and, and trying to be educated on domestic violence issues, child abuse issues, um, best use of evidence, uh, you name it. And, and we've been doing this for a little over two years now. We've grown in the last two years. Uh, we've got another attorney working with us, Ali Sandez, who's, who's fantastic. Uh, and we have uh, a staff of four of us right now, and we're trying to get one or two more people on soon. And you know, we litigate cases, mostly in Maryland, but other places as well. Uh, custody cases involving serious allegations of child abuse and or domestic violence against the protective parent, which is usually most often a mother, but occasionally is a father. It does happen the other way, but not not often. It's probably 90-10, if not higher statistics, that, that the mother is usually a protective parent. And that's what we're doing right now. So, Paul, while you were working pro bono, had you been a family law attorney or were you specializing in some other area? No, that's a great question. No, no, I was a general litigator at O'Melveny uh, with a focus on class actions, a large bet the company litigation. You know, we represented large corporations. I'm not going to say who, but ones you would have heard of uh, in large lawsuits and sometimes in the, you know, certainly in the hundreds of millions and sometimes in the billions of dollar range uh, that were called bet the company litigation. So I had no experience in family law at all. So it was it was a rude awakening. Uh huh. And your your learning curve has that been propelled through your own work experience as a litigator, or have you actually gotten official training through continuing ed through the legal? Nope. Trial by fire. You know, on the job training, as it were. Uh, no formal training. Um, you know, the University of Baltimore here in Maryland has just started a formal. Uh, certificate program training lawyers to do family law. But I, other than that, I'm not aware of any other formal training by law schools other than a class on family law. Um, and I, I never took one in law school and I, I haven't taken anything at the University of Baltimore. But my education, like most family lawyers, was kind of on the job training and learning, learning as you went along. And speaking of Child Justice, Inc., as legal director, can you talk, you mentioned the term protective parent, and mm -hmm. many of our listeners may recognize that term from previous episodes with other guests. Could you define that for our listeners who are hearing that for the first time? Sure. In our um, context, um, protective parent uh, would be in a custody case. Uh, presumably there's two parents. Uh, and I'll, I'll use mother and father in, the, in this example, uh, you will have the father, in this case, being abusive either towards the, the mother of his children, his wife, and or against the children themselves. And often if they're domestic violence against the wife, it's 
quite often, like somewhere between two thirds and three quarters of the time, a matter of time for the children of themselves abused by the abuser. So the, the non-abusive parent, in this case, the mother would be the protective parent seeking to get custody of the children and to have some um, protective regimen put in place uh, for the abuser to have supervised visitation or otherwise protective uh, protections put in place where he can't abuse the children on visitation. And that's the protective parent would be, in this case, like I said, the mother. And does child justice work with mainly pro bono attorneys or what is your role as legal director? Absolutely. We, good, great question. We um, take cases on ourselves, first of all, and they're all pro bono. Uh, you know, we, we don't charge clients anything. And we even have a, a bit of a budget uh, to hire uh, experts in the, to pay for transcripts and what have you. And we also coordinate with other law firms. Usually we try to use the large law firms, like where I came from, O'Melvin Myers being a great example, to do these cases because they're able to staff them. I mean, these are, as you know, these are, or maybe you don't know, but these are, these can be very long cases. They can go on for years. Um, and the smaller shops just don't have the manpower to do these pro bono too often. I mean, occasionally you'll, you will get the smaller shops to do them, but the larger firms are great because they could put two or three or more you know, associates with a partner supervising it, and they have the resources to handle the discovery requests and to, to, to take the depositions and to, to, to uh, engage with the experts and litigate the case you know, nine months down the line, as, as it might be if that's what scheduling calls for. So we – we train them. Uh, we're, we're currently finishing up a manual that we've been writing uh, of how to litigate these cases in Maryland with an emphasis on Maryland law. Now, a lot of it will apply throughout the nation, but we, we, we cite to Maryland case law and Maryland statutes for support. And then we have seminars that we have uh, at these law firms, a training session uh, where we go over um, what to expect in these cases and uh, how to litigate these cases. And we give them a copy of the manual and we're always on call to answer the questions and if sometimes if they would like us to deal with perhaps the experts because we have more expertise in that, we're, we're happy to step into the case and join them and do that if necessary. But that is our, our for lack of a better term, that's our business model. We do them ourselves and we, we work with uh, pro bono attorneys at large firms. And the cases that you take on, they're exclusively in Maryland? Mostly in Maryland, but we do do some in D.C. and Virginia and we advise on other cases around the country. Now, I'm admitted in Maryland and the District of Columbia, so I'm allowed to litigate in both those uh, jurisdictions uh, on my own. And uh, occasionally we will also do a Virginia case where if we have a Virginia local council. But we don't really do many outside of that, uh, of those three jurisdictions, except for offering advice. So with regard to the uh, trends that you see and the need for why your organization exists, Let's turn to some of the systemic challenges and gaps that you've seen as an attorney representing protective parents in addition to parents' children themselves. Sure. Now, just to be clear, we do only represent parents. I am, and, and our, our Ali Sanders, our, our staff attorney, we are both trained to be what are called best interest attorneys or children's attorneys, which is like guardian and litems in other states, but we currently only represent the protective parents. We have not, uh, for a variety of reasons, have not um, stepped in uh, to represent the children. So we're, we're helping the children by representing the protective parent. We're not directly representing the children. Okay. And when a parent comes to you, is there a process or some sort of assessment that you yes. use to yes. identify if they're, if they're credible? Absolutely. There are. 
there, there is a, a process rather. And uh, we, we have an intake form and an interview process. And we, uh, we had to fill out the form and look to see one, if they qualify on paper and, and most people come to us do, but sometimes they don't. And then we will interview them. Uh, to get an, our own take on the facts and uh, uh, our credibility assessment, to be perfectly honest, does this person seem credible? And if they have a current or prior attorney, we'll talk with that attorney too to get their take on things. And uh, we have turned people away for a variety of reasons. Uh, some, uh, what they're describing um, wasn't really abuse. Uh, uh, some just didn't... Uh, uh, that didn't seem credible perhaps and that seldom ever happens, but it does. And others, um, we didn't feel comfortable working with them. Um, some of them took the law and the matters in their own hand and, and would kidnap the child or leave the jurisdiction with the child to protect them, which you're sympathetic to, but you, you can't, you can't, you can't really condone that obviously as an officer of the court. I mean, you, you can't condone it at all. And that usually disqualifies someone, although we do have a case now where the mother kidnapped the child, but she came back and we're representing her because she did come back. But um, so that that is our, our intake process. Okay. And um, are there some determining factors that help you reach the conclusion that someone is a protective parent? Yeah, I mean, it's really just as simple as is is there domestic violence or abuse or at least uh, substantial coercive of control in the case. But it's it's usually our cases that we're going to need some physical manifestation of, of actual violence or abuse uh, because Maryland, like most states, doesn't really recognize coercive of control as a form of abuse. And we certainly can make the case that this is the the best parent for it, but it's hard to um, deposit the case that it's an actually domestic violence case, even though and, and the the definition of domestic violence used by the advocates, and I include myself in there, includes coercive control. The court's definition of domestic violence or abuse does not consider coercive control to be a form of uh, abuse such that certain protective statutes would come in place. Which is very unfortunate, and we've we've thought about uh, we've looked into trying to change that law, and that very well may happen in the future. So let's address some of the myths that um, you probably face uh, in the courtrooms when dealing with protecting or representing these protective parents. And one of them, of course, as we're talking about credibility, is that women lie and the timing of the reporting, especially if it's right before they're going to file for custody or as they are filing for divorce, that somehow that's prohibitive and determinative of their um, desire to, you know, get revenge or whatever it is, um, mm-hmm. win the case. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and how, how does that play out both in terms of the cases you represent, as well as in the larger arena with regard to reporting statistics in general, false reporting? Oh, it's it's a huge uh, narrative in the cases uh, that and, and alienation, parental alienation, parental alienation syndrome, parental parental alienation uh, disorder, whatever they're calling it this week. It's all the same. It's junk science. Uh, it's a huge narrative. Uh, you know this myth that I mean, sure, people lie and 
in court. I'm not going to say people don't lie that it happens, but there's, there's not this, this overwhelming number of mothers out there concocting these stories to, uh, to get a, a tactical or strategic edge in litigation. And if they are, then they're going about the wrong way because studies will show that when, we, when a mother or a protective parent uh, accuses uh, the other parent of abuse, that um, it's not a winning strategy. Uh, you know, the numbers, numbers are anywhere from, you know, two thirds to three quarters or more of abusers will wind up getting either shared or sole custody of the child. So these, you know, you often, you will often see court actors, judges, uh, children's advocates, children's attorneys, best interest attorneys, whatever they're called in your, in the uh, different States, child protective services. I mean, you know, they will, look at abuse allegations with great skepticism. And the nature of abuse, domestic violence, and, and particularly child sexual abuse, is such that there's there's not a lot of witnesses to it. You know, I mean, there's not, it happens behind proverbial and literal closed doors. Uh, you know, if, if, if it's if it's beating the child, then you'll have some bruises. But if it's sexual abuse of the child, then you're not likely to have any evidence. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with a study called It's Normal to be Normal. Mm-hmm, and no. Okay, it's, it's kind of the, the study in child sexual abuse. They took something like 200 cases of admitted sexual abuse. That is, the abuser admitted to sexual abusing the child. So this wasn't a he said, she said, or a mere allegation. And they took the files from those the records, from those the medical records, and they had independent pediatricians review them to make a determination whether they thought abuse had happened or not happened. And these were a blind study, so the People reviewing it didn't realize there'd already been a finding of abuse or, 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 or an admission of abuse. And something like 75% of the cases, and I'm not sure the exact number, but it's a very high number, there was the basically ruled out abuse. So in less than 25% of them, was there any indication there might be abuse? And even that number was of, of, of actual abuse findings was something like less than 10%. The other was something suspicious that there may be abuse. So the point is that if there's sexual abuse of a child, there's not likely to be a lot of evidence. There's, you know, there's not DNA. Uh, there's not uh, a, a torn vagina uh, or other injuries. Uh, and if they are, they heal quickly by the time the protective parent has realized it and perhaps takes the child to the doctor, they're not going to find any abuse. So we have that happening. No actual forensic evidence of abuse of the child. It becomes so much easier, I have a theory on this, it becomes so much easier, particularly for a judge, to believe that mom is making this up in line than it is to believe a father would sexually abuse his child. And once they've got that belief, you, it is so difficult to shake them that even when you come up with more evidence, it's, it's, it's the theory of cognitive dissonance, that you can't hold two conflicting ideas at the same time. You can't believe abuse didn't happen and then see evidence of abuse and believe the abuse did, did happen. Something has to resolve. You have to either change your mind about the abuse and believe it happened, or you have to discount the evidence of abuse and stick with your belief that abuse didn't happen. And when someone does that, when they stick with the belief that abuse didn't happen, when you give them evidence, the more evidence you put in front of them, the more violent their reaction becomes, the more, more uh, sure they become of themselves that this evidence is wrong. And that's why we see judges often getting angry when we're putting on more evidence, still making allegations of abuse. Instead of having an open mind and looking and say, yeah, I think this abuse happened, they're sticking to their original prejudice, their original bias that abuse of a sexual abuse of a child is very rare in a family, did not likely happen, and did not likely happen here. And the more evidence you put in front of them, they still will not believe it. So 
that's those are some of the things we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. This this pervasive bias that, as you point out, the mothers lie. Uh, this pervasive bias that sexual, particularly sexual abuse, not not just physical abuse, but sexual abuse rarely happens. Uh, and then you have parental alienation syndrome. So, isn't it true, in fact, that a researcher? Um, Nicholas Bala found that fathers in contested custody cases were 16 times more likely to make false reports than mothers. So there is actually a very big difference in um, the credibility of who's making the report and when, when it comes to custody cases. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. You know, the, the irony of it is, is the mothers aren't statistically the ones that are lying more. It's the fathers that are lying more. Um, that's what studies have shown. You're absolutely correct. But that is not the prejudice that the courts and the, the judicial and legal actors uh, who go into court, that's not the prejudice that they have. And and when you were referencing cognitive dissonance that um, judges or decision makers couldn't hold simultaneously the belief that there is abuse or there is an abuse, isn't it the case that it's not the cognitive dissonance of there isn't abuse, but more so potentially the cognitive dissonance that children need both parents potentially, or that this person, usually the father that has allegations against him that's presenting positively cannot possibly be an abuser. So, you know, either one of those um, scenarios or thoughts occurring simultaneously with he's been accused of something horrible, domestic violence, child abuse, or child sexual abuse, that those are the, in a way, biases that mm-hmm. um, inform this cognitive dissonance. Yes, they are. And, and that's a great point is, is, you know, if you have a case, let's assume in a case of domestic violence or, or child abuse that, that you have a sociopath on the other side. And unfortunately, that happens more often than we think. You know, the, the book, The Sociopath Next Door, uh, which, which everyone should read, posits that, that probably about 10% of the population has some so, uh, sociopathy in them, or sociopathic tendencies. And so if you have someone that way, they present extremely well. That's, that is their effectiveness. They're very charming, very personable, and they present well. And you're dealing with a court system and a family law system that the, the average case your judge deals with is a deadbeat parent, usually a deadbeat dad who's not paying child support. And they're sick of, you know, they're seeing these guys come in and they're not paying for their kids and they get hammered by the judge, et cetera. Then you get a case here where you've got a, a domestic, uh, an allegation of domestic violence or child abuse by the mother, who, by the way, is coming across as crazy. And the reason why she's coming across as crazy is because she's suffering probably from PTSD and her world has been rocked uh, that, that the man that she, at least at one time loved is now passively abusing their child, her child, their child. And it is, is just undercut uh, everything she's ever known. So she's, she's lost that foundation and now she's got some paranoia. She's got some PTSD and that comes across as, as quote unquote crazy. You've got that. And she's making these crazy accusations that this nice guy in front of the judge is abusing the children. And this guy says, your honor, I love my kids. I want my kids. I want custody of my kids. So then, you, you know, it's easier to say, hey, this is great. I finally got a good father. I'm going to award him custody. And this, this mom who's lying about him should be punished. Now, they'll never say it as, as punishment. They're saying it's the best interest of the child. But there's no way you can escape the belief that they're simply punishing these mothers. If you're there in court and you hear the sarcasm in their, or the, 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 the tone of their voice and the look on their face, it is truly punishment when they're ordering supervised visitation for these mothers for, for making uh, these – 
these these allegations that are just crazy and for potentially alienating the children from their father. So, yes, that's exactly right. There's, it's hard for these judges to believe that this person standing in front of them could possibly be an abuser when he presents so well in court. And, and what about the myth um, that children need both parents versus children need safe parents? It's just that. It's a myth. You know, I, I, I support the idea. I do not support the idea that a child is better off with two parents. A, a child is better off with two nurturing, supportive, loving, caring parents, yes. But if one of those parents is not uh, in that mold, then the child's better off with one loving, nurturing parent and having limited contact with the non-supportive, um, um, caring, nurturing parent who may be either abusing that child's mother or abusing that child. And yes, you're right. Judges have that bias. They believe that uh, the science does not back them. The studies that show children are better for two parents are are not um, not very credible studies. Uh, they're, they're, they have a lot of biases of their own, and uh, they've been uh, heavily criticized, correctly criticized by people who have studied this even deeper, uh, in particularly domestic violence advocates. And a child is simply better off with one loving parent than he or she is with one loving parent and an abusive parent. And let's turn to another myth, which is that even if there isn't child abuse now, that there was domestic violence or there is domestic violence or coercive control in the relationship between Mm -hmm. the parents and whether it's in the past or in the present, and that's irrelevant to child abuse. Can you address that? Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, first of all, let's assume for the argument that there is no child abuse and there never is going to be child abuse in any given case. Let's just assume that for a second. Uh, by child abuse, I mean direct child abuse, battering the child. I'm of the view that battering the child's mother is a form of child abuse itself um, for a variety of reasons. One, you, you're you exposing that child to domestic violence. That's that's an adverse event for this child. It's one of you know, the AC studies have showed how uh, – how horrific these are for children when they're exposed to this. The long-term health effects it has into uh, into adulthood uh, are incredible. Um, so, and also, if you're battering the other parent, if you're battering the mother, who is in this case the non-abusive protective parent, making her life so much more difficult to effectively raise the children, you are call- you are again abusing these children by denying them this uh, the, the full attention of this parent that they should normally get but are not getting because this parent is worried about protecting the children from domestic, from abuse, worried about her own domestic violence, etc. So I believe that the battering a parent is a form of child abuse. But let's assume, again, that, that it's not that uh, that uh, it's not happening. Again, that would be a form of child abuse. But more likely than not, it's a matter of time before actual abuse of the child will occur. The statistics show, uh, you know, depending on what studies, anywhere from, you know, a half or two thirds up to three quarters uh, or more. And I, I don't have them at my fingertips, but I, and I know there's multiple studies that that, that well, a parent who batters the other parent will eventually uh, abuse the children. It's just a matter of time. And in the courtrooms that you've been in, is it fair to say that? The judges and the decision makers, maybe the attorneys or the guardians at litem, attorneys for the children, that do they even take domestic violence seriously, putting aside yeah. the child abuse? 
No, uh, quite often they don't. More often than not, they don't. I've actually had battered mothers say to me that just because he was a bad husband and beat me, I still think he was a great dad, which, you know, and by personally, by definition, in my book, you, you cannot be a great parent if you are, if you're battering the child's parent, other parent, right. you know, the child's mother. So I, I've had them say that I've had cases where we were trying to put in, you know, Maryland, like most states, it requires judges to at least consider domestic violence when uh, making determinations of of custody, awards of custody. And I had one case where we were putting, where the, you know, the, the, we were putting in evidence of uh, abuse of the mother, and the judge refused to hear it and said, I, "I won't hear it unless you can tell me how it affects these children." Well, you know. The, the state, the legislature had already made that decision. He's required to consider this. And we lost that case and the, the battering husband got uh, custody of it. And we took it up on appeal and the appellate courts, to my chagrin, said, uh, upheld the trial judge and said, uh, where's the effect of just because the judge did not allow the evidence of abuse to come in doesn't mean he didn't consider it, which is just, you know, crazy. I mean, of, of course he didn't consider it. And, the, you know, the, the appellate courts themselves did not take the abuse seriously uh, and uh, were, were violating the statute, in my view. It's very unfortunate that that happened. And, and in that so, case, did, did, did it go up further? No, it did not go further. We, uh, we weren't able to get it. You're not, you don't get an appeal of rights to the highest appellate court, unfortunately. So it, it ended there. Um, and that father still has custody of those children. And uh, he, he has been uh, still abusive towards the mother by denying her access to these children. But that's a, that's a whole other, I could talk about that case for a, a great length. But that's an example of what we face. That first of all, they don't believe it's happening because unless there's, you know, they they, they kind of have a, a Stanley Kowalski view of uh, domestic violence. Stanley Kowalski was a character from Streetcar Named Desire, played by Marlon Brando. You know, he has the that's called the wife beater T-shirt on. You know, the sleeveless mm-hmm, T-shirt. Mm-hmm. And he's a hulking male, and you know, he, he was a you know he was abusive, and they had kind of expected the guy doesn't look like that. He can't be abusive. So you can't you, you know a lawyer, accountant, engineers in front of the judge can't be an abuser because they don't look like Stanley Kowalski. Basically, if they're if they're poor or blue collar, they're exactly. an abuser, and if they're not, then they can't yes. be. Exactly, exactly. And that's not to say that uh, that even if they're blue collar, the judge won't believe it. And, and you know, most blue collar people are not abusers. You know, but it, it goes across the whole spectrum. Abusers are blue collar, white collar, highly educated <laughs> judges on the courts of appeals. We have seen. So uh, you know, they they don't believe it. But even when it's they believe, even if they believe it, they discount it. They just do not give it the credit as it should get. Um, there, there ought to be, and some states have this, Maryland doesn't have it, but some states have a presumption that someone who commits domestic violence against a parent should not get custody, and they can overcome that presumption, but that is the presumption. And But Maryland, unfortunately, is not one of those states, and it, it's, it's a shame because our courts are not giving domestic violence the weight they need to give when they're making their custody awards. So what I hear you saying is that even when there are laws in place that guide decision-making in these courts, number one, if they're not followed, then the recourse for litigants is to appeal. But then mm-hmm. if they're unsuccessful in the appeal, then it kind of stops there. Is Correct. that okay? But That's exactly right. So let's, let's turn to yesterday's uh, big news. The House passed 
Uh, Congressional yes. Resolution 72, I'd love to hear your take on the significance of that. First, briefly describe what it is, what its intention is, and what you think the impact will be. Well, it's it's great. I'm very happy for it. Its intention is the is is a non-binding resolution by Congress instructing the states to to take uh, safety of the child very seriously to make it the number one priority in custody determinations and, and, and family law determinations. Um, which, in theory, I think courts think they're doing when they when they evaluate the best uh, interest of the child. But too often they're they're considering the rights of the parents. Now, don't get me wrong; parents do have rights, and they should have rights. Um, but it's always should be outweighed when it's conflicting with the safety of the child. And I think um, you know I've had a case where you know the judge referred to a, an abusive father who had been put on supervised visitation. As this poor guy hasn't seen his kids in unsupervised visitation in months. You know, overly sympathetic to the, the father. Well, there's a reason why he's in supervised visitation, you know, because, you know, domestic violence and abuse. So even when they, even when that is awarded, judges are, are almost bitter, apologetic about it because they're considering the, the rights of the parent more than they are the safety of the child. The effect, you know, I'm kind of torn on the effect. I mean, I, I don't think you're going to see, unfortunately, judges and, uh, and legislatures throwing up their hands and say, oh, my gosh, they're right. We need to be doing this. Let's make these changes. I mean, I just don't think you're going to have that type of effect. I, I wish we could. Now, having said that, in Maryland, we are in the process. We're hoping to um, our governor, Larry Hogan, assuming if he is reelected and right. And I'm not advocating one way or another about his election, but he is leading the polls right now. And his elections in you know less than two months. Um We'll be appointing a task force here in Maryland to study whether we should have special domestic violence custody courts. And if so, um, appointing specialized, highly trained judges into people, you know, lawyers who are trained in domestic violence and in abuse and in trauma, uh, to be the judges to handle these cases. If this goes through, we, we think we would be the first state to have that. There are domestic violence courts, but they're, they're all, to our knowledge, related to the criminal side. So the guy beats up his wife and they charge him criminally. He goes to special domestic violence court. We're bringing it to the civil side where it would include custody cases, where it actually would mostly be custody cases, in fact. That's the intent of them. And so I'm very pleased that this governor of this state is taking this very seriously, and we're going to point to this congressional resolution as part of the support for the idea when we're trying to convince the legislature to, to, to change these laws, to set up these specialized courts, um, that this needs to be done. This, this is in keeping with the finding of Congress. Now, like I said, there's no guarantee or even likelihood that most legislatures and judges are going to throw up their hands and say Congress is right. And there's no hammer that comes with this legislation. There's no do this. It's a carrot, but it's not a stick. There's no stick. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We're not going to cut your funding off if you don't do anything. You know, and how do you think uh, the members who passed this resolution were expecting that it would influence the courts and the states? I, you know, I I don't know. I I think, um, well, first of all, it passed the House unanimously, if I remember correctly, um, and it's it's another instance where <laughs> there's a great quote. Uh, I don't have it at my fingertips, but it's it's in the book. Uh, it's in the book of uh, the witchcraft narrative, um, where everyone is against child abuse in the abstract, um, but um, 
for it uh, in the in actuality. Uh, I'm torturing the quote. I'm not getting it right. But it's basically that it's easy to take a stance and say, yes, I'm against child abuse and domestic violence. But when it comes to actually taking action, you know, appropriating more funds for courts, for lawyers, for training, for judges, et cetera, that doesn't happen. And, and, and by the same extension of that logic, when you know, every judge will say I'm against domestic violence, I'm against child abuse, but when they have these cases in front of them, they they ignore evidence of domestic violence and child abuse, and make horrible custody determinations. So you know they're against it in the abstract, but for it in, in actuality. Now, of course, they're not actually for it, but but their actions are speaking louder than their their abstract words of being against it. You know, we had a recent case here in Maryland, um, the, the Holt case, which got some national coverage. Uh, and both parents are doctors, and the father is an Air Force colonel who was wounded in Afghanistan and received a traumatic brain injury. And after coming back from that, as many folks do have TBIs, um, he had a lot of aggression and domestic violence and abuse and, and very overwhelming evidence of abuse of the couple's two children who are twin boys. I believe they're six or seven years old. And the Air Force was going to prosecute him for that, but unfortunately, the the uh, that the lawyers on the ground wanted to do that, but the commanders, and this can works in the military, uh, ordered them to stand down and not prosecute him. That they have an override that they can do that. And the custody case here, the judge, just the judge and the children's best attorney, uh, best interest attorney, so called best interest attorney, absolutely ignored overwhelming evidence of domestic violence and abuse. Absolutely, you know, fifteen black eyes of these kids, all kinds of stuff. They, they minimize it down to a black eye, a single black eye, which is not at all what the evidence showed. Uh, my understanding, there was a, a rape kit that came back uh, potentially positive for forced anal sex. You know, I mean, just. Uh, uh, just a, a lot of evidence that was ignored that the mother who had been their primary um, caregiver lost custody of the two boys to the father and was put on supervised visitation, which in itself is a form of trauma for these kids, you know, to, to lose their mother that way and be put on supervised visitation. She was put on that because she was allegedly brainwashing these children to make allegations against their father. And so the court ignored actual evidence of abuse and went with speculative abuse that the mother's allegedly doing by brainwashing the children, despite the fact there's zero evidence of any type of brainwashing. And in fact, the father's testimony was that he gets along great with his kids and, and, and that they love him very much. So there was no actual evidence that the mother's supposed brainwashing was having any effect on the relationship with the father. And it was another example of junk science of, of alienation invading the courtroom. It should have never, uh, it should have never happened. And I, I don't know what's going to happen on the appeal. This case just happened within the last 30 days or so. But uh, it's a great example of, of judges, again, being against domestic violence and abuse in the abstract, uh, but uh, for it in reality. Again, they're not actually for it, but, but their actions are because they're ignoring evidence of it. They're in effect for it. We actually have a saying my, my colleague Eileen King made up, which is wonderful. It's, it's, it's worse to accuse than it is to abuse. It's in the court's mind. And, and that's, that speaks to the way child justice describes the protective parents being, quote unquote, mm-hmm. lost in the system. Yes, um, exactly. And, and so I guess this brings us to Joan Meyer, whom you're familiar with and her research. Yes. And my, you, my, you were referencing absolutely. junk science. And I think one of the goals of Engendered is to use what's happening in the personal space um, to bring awareness of what's happening in the public space and vice versa. And I love to use the analogy that, you know, the current administration constantly 
puts forth the term, quote unquote, fake news. And it's similar to um, what abusers do when there are allegations, legitimate allegations of abuse. Their defense against it is to argue parental alienation. Um, So it's similar to what the administration is doing where there are facts that make the administration look bad and and to defend themselves against these facts, they try to delegitimize it by calling the whole mainstream media fake. And it, that's what you mean by junk science in terms of the term yes. parental alienation. Correct. So Correct. I'm curious because historically there's been lots of efforts to try to legitimize it. There have been efforts over the years to put it on the uh, Diagnostical Statistical Manual, the most recent Diagnostical yeah. DSM-5. D- DSM-5. It wasn't entered. Um, we know that it's quote-unquote marginalized in the psychiatric community. Mm-hmm. Um, there are the American Psychiatric Association's president came out against it. On the website of the American Judges Association, they they talk about it and various other councils. So why is it still something that's part of the narrative? Uh, because judges buy into it. Uh, you've got a lot of experts out there who I think are snake oil salesmen who's pushed this. You know, I, my personal experience with it is that the, the, I have fought against it and been successful at the trial level. Um but I, I actually, I hate to say it this way, but I, I need to get a case where we aggressively challenge it at the trial level and lose and take it up on appeal and then reverse it on appeal so we have a published opinion that is by any precedent in the state of Maryland that it has to be excluded at, at trial. So I haven't had that case that I've been directly involved in happen yet. And the last time I filed what's called a motion in limine to, per, to prevent a pretrial motion to prevent its use, the other side, it, it was a, it was a victory. The other side withdrew their claims in alienation. They, they, they couldn't defend it at the hearing. So they withdrew their claims. Um, and that's great. And that's, I'm, I'm pleased and that's a great outcome for my client and I'm pleased, but it, 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 in a way it was unfortunate. It was a bittersweet victory. And then if had I, uh, had I lost on that, and, and even if I had won at trial but lost on that issue, I still could have appealed that that one issue that I lost, uh, at least in Maryland you can, um, uh, so that it's, it's used as a precedent in other cases. And it's, it's, it's not generally accepted. Um, the, there's no valid uh, uh, studies that show that it's correct. The, the, there's no valid studies that show that the remedies for it have any positive effect on the children. Uh, usually it's put, you know, it's usually excluding the, the so-called alienating parent out of the children's lives for a time and have them a supervised visitation, et cetera. Uh, and there's no evidence that that has any positive effect at all. And in fact, scars the children and causes even more trauma for the children. Um, but judges buy it. They believe in it. You know, uh, they're, they're told by some of these experts, so-called experts, that it's good science. And it's not. And and so it simply is not in those cases. Is the remedy again appeal? It's a legal remedy. Yes, but you have to have an attorney. And here here's where it gets tricky. These are some of the nuances of the law. You have to have an effective attorney at the trial level who challenges it, and, and particularly you have to to challenge it pre-trial. 
uh, it's just it's just a quirk in the in the rules that we have here that in order to have what's called a Fry or a Daubert hearing, those those are the two cases that uh, that it, it states fall under almost I think I think all fifty. I mean, Louisiana might not because you know they have a slightly different system, but certainly. The other 49 states in the District of Columbia either use a Fry or a Daubert standard of admissibility. Fry is, is it, is it generally accepted, uh, in the scientific community? Daubert is different where they go through some of the, um, uh, the rigorousness of the science, the validity of the science itself. Now, even if it is, even if it is generally accepted, it still may be inadmissible. And if it's not generally accepted, it still may be admissible depending on the strength of the science. So they're two different tests. And Maryland is technically a Fry state, but we're actually a hybrid though. We kind of have a little bit of both Fry and, and Daubert. So I've, I've attacked it under both theories and you have to do that pre-trial. It's called a motion in limine. You have to ask for a hearing on it and if you lose at that stage, you get to appeal that issue, uh, that it, that it's junk science and have an attack on it in the appellate courts under the case law, under Daubert or Fry. Is this for, true for every state or just Maryland? I know it's true for Maryland. Obviously, it's, it's probably true in most states, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if they're required because in Maryland, if you don't do it pretrial, you have waived your, your Fry attack. You can't bring it up at trial. So you could still attack it, but you can't, you've lost that fry challenge, that stronger challenge. And the, what's, what's dangerous about that is on review, and this is where I'm getting really into the weeds here, and I apologize to your listeners if their eyes are glazing over at this, but um, the appellate courts, when it's a fry challenge, at least in Maryland, have what's called a de novo review of the evidence. The court, the appellate court has its own review. They don't give any credence to what the judge found. They do their own review of the validity of the science. And that's what you want to have. If you don't do that, if you don't do the fry, and you simply challenge it under what's called Rule 702 on scientific evidence, they have what's called abusive discretion. And so they, did the judge abuse his or her discretion in allowing this in? So you've weakened yourself on an appeal. Now, I believe personally that fry and Daubert, or rather that, that, a print alienation can't withstand any challenge. You know that, in other words, that it it, it would still be an abuse of discretion uh, at the appellate level. But you have weakened yourself and given up that strong de novo review of the evidence, which is what you want. So um, that's the problem you'll see you know, when people have these cases. We get them, and you know their lawyers did not effectively challenge them. And then there's another reason for that. People, you know, most lawyers who are not specialized in this, who, who are advocates in domestic violence, okay, who are on our side, they also believe in alienation. They'll, they'll argue it didn't happen in this particular case, let's say, but they believe it happens. So they're, and they use it, they've used it in other cases. They're probably reluctant, I would imagine, to attack it in a way to kill it on an appeal because they may be using it themselves in another case next week. So they, they're not incentivized. And, I, and I'm not, a, don't get me wrong, I'm not accusing them of being unethical. I don't think they look at it that way. I think they genuinely believe it's, it's sound science and therefore they wouldn't want to attack it. But, but with that is the idea that if they, they were to successfully kill it, then they're, they're, they're cutting off their nose to spite their face, that they're hurting themselves in other cases. Whereas we from child justice, you know, we want to kill it completely. We think it's junk science. Uh, we don't think it, it helps our client. You know, they, they use it against our clients almost exclusively, but in theory, we could use it against the other side, but we think it's not admissible evidence. So you need a lawyer like that at the trial level 
attacking this. Andrew's familiar with the science, very familiar with the science, very familiar with the case law, very familiar with the rules of evidence, what needs to be done, how you attack this. And it's not happening 90% of the time. And And, and even if you were to give it some weight and credibility, which in itself is, as we acknowledged earlier, is a defense against legitimate abuse allegations, Mm -hmm. then it's still not being applied evenly. Um, in, no, in the in, in the sense, for example, as you said earlier, when men who are accused of either domestic violence or child abuse, child sexual abuse, when they are given supervised visitation, there's a reluctance to do so. There's a there's a, a sort of um, unwillingness to apply the law hard on those cases. And yet, when the domestic violence survivor is bringing up abuse. The supervised visitation may be a retaliation for that, and it's done so in such a draconian way that some, yeah. I've, I know that there are many, many protective mothers who lose contact with their children altogether over time. Yep, yep. I do too. Um, yeah, that's, that's a tragedy. So what are the next steps in terms of policy um, with regard to either House Congressional Resolution 72, you talked about the potential with Governor Hogan of this domestic violence courts. Are are those solutions just band-aids? Or if you had a magic wand to wave, what would you recommend instead for how you'd like to see things change? I I have some optimism that, that if we are able to create these specialized domestic violence courts in custody case and family law cases with with properly trained judges who have the right mindset, uh, that we will have great effects, at least here in Maryland, uh, on these things. It's not going to be a cure-all, but nothing's going to be a cure-all. Uh, nothing's a cure-all for anything. Any any plague in the society is still going to have some of it seeping through, no matter what efforts are put into it. I'm optimistic if we're getting the right judges, and that's the that's part of the key thing. Because when you read Saunders, it's, it's sobering that he talks about how training in of itself is not sufficient that that judges um, can receive training and kind of roll their eyes at it. And we've heard stories about, you know, judges of training who sit there, you know, they felt they're required to be there and they listen politely, but they don't believe any of it. And that doesn't help you. And Saunders does cover that. I mean, you have to have the right training, but you have to have people with an open mind. And this gets back to the cognitive dissonance I was talking about. And there's great studies out there about um, – about people holding on to discredited beliefs, which fits in the cognitive dissonance that I talked about earlier. And once they've been contaminated with uh, a belief that's very strong to them, that you're, you're just not going to shake them up. You know, all the evidence in the world is not going to shake them. So I, I think it's going to take um, a lot of scrutiny on the judicial candidates that, that this task force would recommend the governor point that they have the right mindset, that they understand trauma, they understand domestic violence, they understand coercive control. They recognize that, that alienation is junk science. They recognize that while people do lie in all types of litigation, there's no um, prevalence of mothers lying exclusively or, or, or more so than, than anybody else about abuse in this case, that they're lying just as much as your uh, person on a con- breach of contract case might lie. It's not, it's not a, 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 uh, an epidemic of lying protective parents out there, that they, they don't have those biases uh, that, that uh, they believe people make up abuse 
for the sole purpose of uh, getting an advantage in litigation. It's not to say that people don't lie. It's not to say that they should believe every single allegation that comes in front of them. Absolutely not. But they need to have a different uh, mindset when determining credibility. And they have to recognize, and there's a great article um, that uh, was written by, um, uh, it was, I think it's Barbara Epstein, but I'm going to get that long, or name wrong from uh, Georgetown University, my alma mater, about uh, judges making credibility determinations on domestic violence abusers and how using, uh, excuse me, domestic violence survivors, using normal uh, methods of credibility determination uh, are, are going to show them to be liars all the time. They have to recognize that a domestic violence survivor is going to be disjointed. The story is not going to have coherence often. Um, uh, they may have a flat affect when talking about abuse because they're dissociating. Is, they isn't that just PTSD. understanding trauma then? Shouldn't, it, is, I mean, it is absolutely. It's absolutely just understanding trauma uh, and understanding its, understanding its effects and understanding what a witness who's gone through trauma is going to, how they're going to present. Uh, and you're right. That's what it is. And, and these judges, these hopefully this happens, these prospective judges are going to have that proper training before they ever get to the bench. So if that is able to happen, I, I think you could see uh, a lot of good coming out of that. I do. I think, though, that if you just say, all right, let's just increase some training for the current judges, that that would be money not well spent. I mean, sure, some of them will improve, absolutely. But many of them will just go to the training, roll their eyes, figuratively or literally, and go back to the bench and do what they've always been doing. I, I want to address several things that you just brought up. One is you repeatedly use the word mindset. Mm-hmm. Clearly, for people, you know, for the immediate uh, and medium term, training is, I guess, in some ways, the best that we could do to mm-hmm. helping address closed mindsets and fixed mindsets. But what about being able to address it in terms of prevention and cultivating open mindsets through how we raise our children and shifting culture? In what ways can we contribute positively towards preventing people who seek positions of power in society, including on the bench, from maintaining their biases or at least not being open to addressing and and looking within? I wish I had an answer to that. I mean, I think it's, I hate to say it, I hate to have a cop up, but it's, it's kind of above my pay grade. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a lawyer who, 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 uh, who, who fights or performs in a certain realm in the courtroom. And, and some of what you're talking about are larger societal changes that need to occur. Uh, the, the education, you know, the me too movement is, 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 is on us, right. Is, is with us right now. And, and I'm hopeful that that's going to start changing outlooks and mindsets, um, from from how we were as recently as six months ago or a year ago, and certainly better than we were ten years ago. Uh, but I don't know. I, I I don't know the answer to that question. I, you know, again, I know training is very important, but it's it's not sufficient. Uh, you have to have uh, beating a, beating the drum here on mindset, but you have to have the right mindset, the right open mindedness to receive that training and use it effectively. Uh, and you know, current. Judges who can, you know, who are selected, and I'm not criticizing judges per se on this because this, this is just how it's done. But you know, in Maryland, judges the, the county bars nominate uh, three or four candidates for an open position on the bench to send to the governor, and the governor picks from there. And that is, you know, they're they're jacks of all trades, and they need to be because their courts are general jurisdiction. They need to handle 
not just divorce and custody, but they need to have breach of contract. They need to handle criminal stuff, mat, you know, uh, robberies, murders, um, uh, torts, car accidents, everything. So this is, that's just a small segment. And to expect them, uh, even, even good judges, even open-minded judges, to be up on the latest literature on trauma uh, is expecting a lot because there's a lot for them to go on. I mean, ideally, they would be just as up on ACEs and trauma and and uh, traumatic brain traumatic brain injury effects on people as they are in the latest changes in the rules of evidence. But I think that's kind of a naive and unfair expectation for them, which is why, again, circling back to my view, that if we have specialized courts with judges who are trained, uh, properly trained in this area, and focus on domestic violence, focus on trauma, uh, on, on child attach, childhood attachment, etc. That you'll see, you'll start seeing better outcomes. And I have some optimism that it might happen. That, that I'm hopeful that it will happen here in Maryland. It's going to take a couple years. And it's going to take a dedicated governor and a receptive legislature to get it to happen. But I'm. Uh, this particular administration, to its credit, is very, very strong, very good on uh, domestic violence and trafficking uh, and other issues like that. It's uh, This governor has kind of taken it on as some of his pet causes. Um, so we, we've had um, here in Maryland, we've been like, and I'm sounding like I'm, I'm in his campaign. I'm actually on the other. I'm actually, we're not the same party. <laughs> so, but uh, this particular administration has been very good on this issue. And I'm hoping if we can have a, a pilot program in Maryland that could be a de facto pilot program in Maryland that other states could look to to make those changes down the road, then I think it would be uh, you'd see some good outcomes. I'm glad you brought up the Me Too movement, especially in the context of the news the past several weeks with um, candidate Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court. Um, What are your thoughts with regard to how the public um, has responded to the recent allegations brought up against him versus how you thought, if you can recall, the public responding when Anita Hill and the Clarence Thomas hearings were taking place. Um, <clears throat> Is, has there been any great- change? <laughs> Uh, well, we don't know yet. We haven't had the hearings. Uh, the, the date of this interview, we were, we're, I think the first hearing is tomorrow. Uh, well, not, uh, not by the, the elected officials, because I, no, I personally think I we're, we've gone backwards. It's, it's worse. But what about in terms of the public response? It, um, well, that's just it. It's, 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 it's a different world and a, on a couple of different levels than it was during Media Hill. I would say that I like to think generally that it, that these allegations are better received. People are less cynical that that a woman would make these stuff up, make the stuff up, and come forward and, by most accounts, destroy her life or adversely affect her life for the rest of her life because there's going to be plenty of enemies that she's making in this. So I like to think that generally speaking, things are better. However. The level of partisanship we have now and tribalism we have now that, that wasn't nearly as high back in Anita Hill in 1991, I believe, um, causes otherwise objective people to disbelieve anything that, that's negative about members of their party or anything that's put forward by members of the other party. That that So you, you've got a kind of two levels here. On one level, generally, I think we're better, but because this is in a political arena, that it's worse than it was in 91 that you've got 
much more closed-mindedness, unwillingness to, re- to, to hear the evidence. I mean, you know, the, the, the Senate majority leader has said repeatedly, this is before the hearings, that as soon as the hearings are done, we're going to vote this guy and we're going to get him on the bench. Well, that's clearly not an open mind. I mean, he's not even paying lip service to an open mind. He's not saying, well, let's see what happens and hopefully we'll, we'll get him on. No, he's not saying that. He's saying it, Mitch McConnell's saying it will happen. He will be on the bench by next week. So it's worse in that regard than it was during the Clarence Thomas era. Uh, their Clarence Thomas and Nita Hill hearings, rather. But I like to think, um, in another regard, that your average person sitting around the, the water cooler at work who's not as partisan as a lot of actors are is much more open-minded to believing, particularly when you have multiple victims coming forward that right now are up to four uh, as of today. So I'm hopeful that it's going to be better received, and I'm hopeful that we'll get one or my personal view that we'll get one or two Republican senators to vote the right way and not see the person who I, I think is a sexual predator, in my opinion. I mean, there's enough evidence for me to believe that. The similarities um, between what's happening in the sexual assault rape cases and the tendency, especially as I've seen the media report it, to question the uh, accounts because of trauma symptoms that show up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's so similar to what I've heard and I'm sure you've experienced with regard to judges questioning the credibility of survivors. Yes. yes. Yeah. One, one or two minor, fairly minor inconsistencies that could be explained by the trauma are blown out of proportion. Uh, well, she says that the light, you know, the, 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 this was red and in fact it's yellow or whatever it is, you know, making that up as an example. Now, therefore, she must be lying about everything else. Yeah, you still see that. You see that in this case with the Brett Kavanaugh and you see that uh, with, with, with with judges and child protective services and best interest attorneys uh, focusing on fairly trivial matters that, that can be explained by trauma uh, to discount everything. And again, I think that gets back to the, the cognitive bi- the cognitive dissonance and the biases they have. They don't want to believe it to begin with, so they're, they're searching for um, support. They're searching for, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, it's a form of bias. Uh, when you look for any evidence to support your already previously held belief. confirmation bias. Thank you. Thank you. Confirmation bias. We're talking a lot about bias, but also what about the concept of privilege? You're looking at the Judiciary Committee and there have been memes that have been put forth and not just the, the Kavanaugh hearings, but in other situations where people in power in the room are mainly white men of mm-hmm. a certain age. And... Mm-hmm. They have been accustomed to power and status. And um, to what extent do you think a lot of the response is less about bias and more about just protecting their place in society? Yes, I agree. I think there's a lot of that. I think that, you know, you've got white privilege and male privilege and (laughs) senatorial privilege and, uh, you know, a lot of 60 plus year old men uh, who come from a different world than than a lot of us come from now. Thinking that you know, how dare you attack this this fine, upstanding uh, Christian boy who you know went to Georgetown Prep, a fine Catholic school here in my my county, Montgomery County, Maryland, where I live. Um, that their bias is is their white privilege, their male privilege that they use to attack these women coming forward. So yes, I absolutely agree with you that that's what that's a lot of what you're seeing. Well, I think this brings us to the close of our conversation. At the end of each interview, I like to ask my 
guests a series of questions that I've adopted from James Lipton's Inside the Actor's Studio. It's the Engendered Questionnaire. First question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? What's at stake is a continuation of where we are now. Uh, you're, you're going to see uh, generations of kids, you know, particularly in my realm, domestic violence and child abuse and custody. You're going to see children continue to grow up um, experiencing trauma, whether it's the trauma of themselves being abused or the trauma of, of seeing being exposed to their mother being abused uh, and how that affects them, their health for the rest of their lives. But also you're going to see boys being taught this is how you can treat women. You're going to see girls being taught that this is how you can expect to be treated by men, that this is okay. And you're going to see this perpetuate itself. You're going to see some of those boys growing up to be abusers and some of those girls growing up to be abused and not knowing any better. So I think if, if we don't start taking this more seriously, you're going to see continuation where we are. We're going to see these, this happening. People trapped in the endless cycle of violence for generation after generation. And the ill health effects that we now know are related to adverse events that happen when people are children. You know, I can't recommend highly enough that people do some study on the ACEs, that do some research on the ACEs studies and what it has shown uh, that these health effects are lifelong. They, you know, they don't, you know, people say children are resilient. Well, they're resilient in a sense, but it's taking its toll on these kids and it's going to last through the rest of their lives. Well, into adulthood, and it's going to cost us all money, quite frankly, through increased health care costs. So I think if we don't start taking domestic violence and child abuse more seriously in our courts, and how we handle custody awards and the way we, we handle access that abusers can have to children, that nothing is going to get any better. And I'm hoping that things will start getting better if, if the right people are starting to make the right decisions uh, up on the bench. That brings me to my second question. What gives you hope? What gives me hope uh, right now, uh, this, this congressional resolution show that there are people that are aware of, uh, of, of what's going on and that changes need to be made and that advocates, you know, like my organization, not the pastors on the back, but we'll, we'll take that and use it, leverage it in their state legislatures to make changes that need to be made. You know, dif- different, uh, uh, not, you know, I've been, I've been beating the drum on uh, specialized courts, but not just that, but uh, uh, increased funding for domestic violence uh, victims, uh, increased funding for attorneys to handle these cases, uh, not just more shelters for them, but more supervised visitation centers. That is one legitimate problem that I've heard judges say that I agree with them, that I could award supervised visitation, but neither of these parents could afford, can afford a supervisor. I've got no facility to send them to, and I don't like using, let's say, grandparents to be the supervisors because that puts them in a conflict and in an untenable position. And it's, it's difficult to award supervisation under those circumstances. So they, they don't do it. And I understand where they're coming from. So I would like to see uh, more supervised visitation centers connected to every County courthouse. So it's easier for the judge with paid professionals who do this, that to so the parents who don't have enough money, uh, don't have to spend what little money they have to have this or not get it at all. So what I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that, uh, more advocates will get elected to positions of power, the legislatures and governorships and uh, senators, et cetera, uh, that we can start making changes that way. And last question. Mm-hmm. Um, you've kind of addressed this a little bit just now. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop? 
Well, speaking from from my area as an attorney, we can we can fight war in the courts to keep the system honest, to fight evidentiary fights to keep junk science out like alienation or purely speculative uh, ideas that mom must be brainwashing these children if they're making these allegations when there's no evidence of any of that happening. Um, that we could do more of. I, I, I often get a case where things have, you know, things have already gone bad for the mom. I'm coming in after she's already got a, a bad opinion, a, a bad um, outcome for the trial courts. And she tells me about all this stuff that's, ha- you know, he abused me and here's this and here's that. And I'll say, well, this was this evidence ever put in from the judge. And the answer is no. My lawyer said he didn't want to piss off the judge. He didn't want to anger the judge uh, by making, you know, these allegations of abuse. So it didn't use any evidence. And what little allegations we made were enough to get me unsupervised visitation because I'm alienating my children. I want to see lawyers stop doing that. Don't be afraid to anger the quote unquote anger the court by litigating your case. Now I'm not suggesting you go anger them unnecessarily, but when you have evidence, use your evidence. Fight against bad evidence. Take it up on appeal if you lose. But if you don't leave an appellate record, there's nothing to appeal. So I would like to see lawyers more aggressively challenging these cases, like we do at Child Justice, uh, and trying to keep the system honest. You know, try to make them follow the rules of evidence, follow the rules of civil procedure, and if that's the case, you'll get. Start getting better outcomes if you start doing it that way. Paul Griffin, Legal Director at Child Justice, Inc., thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. CanDoIt helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. CanDoIt. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuen. Thank you. Thank you.